Welcome to the Anime Podcast. This week, finds our intrepid band chasing the spectre of Jeffrey Epstein across the North Atlantic on his way to free Ghislaine Maxwell from prison in New York. We can only hope we get there with enough time to catch him and save Miss Maxwell from another suspicious suicide. This week, we have a special episode for you, a deep dive on World War II. Uh, it seeds in the Weimar Republic, the reality of it being primarily a war between the USSR and Nazi Germany, and the crushing of the communist movement in France and Italy by the newly ascendant American Empire in uh, 1945-46, etc. This episode will be slightly longer than normal, given the huge amount of detail we have to cover, uh, but hopefully you enjoy it. Welcome to the Anime Podcast, the podcast you're listening to right now. Uh, so today we're going to be going over the topic of World War II. Um, and I am your host, James. We've got uh, two historical experts um, talking. <laughs> yeah, one of them is uh, the co- co-host, Alex. Say hello. Hello. And you've got a degree in... Um, You've got a British, and Irish, British and Irish history from Edinburgh University and Trinity. Yeah, and Seamus, uh, who is a comedy partner of mine, uh, he appeared in the show uh, about James Connolly that I did earlier this year. And what's your degree in again? Uh, I have a master's in military history and strategic studies from Maynooth. Used to be National University of Ireland Maynooth, but now they've started calling it College Maynooth College. Uh, and uh, from my standpoint, I went to uh, a British high school, so all I got taught in history was World War Two, uh, which was mostly wrong as well. So I, I'll be as much as an expert as um, as anyone else. Um, so yeah, let's get started. Uh, the reason that we're talking about World War Two at the moment uh, in this podcast, anyway, is that a lot of the events that uh, happened in World War II and immediately afterward, not only shaped the the 20th century, and you know, it's still we're still feeling a lot of the effects now, but a lot of the, the lead up or the uh, the incidents surrounding the formation of the events that led up to World War II, we're seeing them recreated again and again um, in the 21st century. Um, so a little bit of historical perspective uh, to to help some people uh, see straight, but also the way that World War II is taught in high schools and universities and in popular history and the way it's used as a bludgeon um, for, for the left and the right, uh, but mostly the right in today's discourse. So, um, what are opening thoughts on World War II in general? Um, I probably can sum it up pretty quickly, to be honest with you. I think World War II, in many ways, is the most unhelpful event in world world history um, because it gives people a false binary perspective of good and bad. In fact, for most of the 20th century and into the 21st, um, governments from Russia to America to everywhere in between have used it as a kind of uh, an analogy, I suppose, as to how they're great and their enemy is like Hitler. 
you know. And in some cases, like Saddam was saying, they actually looked a bit like Hitler. But other than that, um, so yeah, I don't think it's actually particularly helpful. Um, I certainly don't think it's helpful that British people don't know anything else about any other events in their history other than World War II. And the same almost could be said for uh, Americans in many ways. There's very little awareness of any of the other history, which is far more important, whether it be about the British Empire or whether it be about whatever else. So I think it's probably over-discussed, uh, mythologized, um, and actually for greater world history and people's attempts to understand the world in the here and now, it's it's not actually very helpful. Yeah, I'd, I'd uh, strongly agree with Alex there um, because I think very much in the mindset of like um, the British and the Americans and most of the people in the West, World War II was just seen as this fight between the West and the Axis powers. They really sort of cut out anything that happened in, say, China, between China and Japan or even Russia in the latter days of the war going to war with Japan, people think that it was purely America winning the war by uh, by their actions in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, even if America had been taken out of the equation, Russia was always going to defeat Japan. Uh, it's, it's always very much framed as a victory of America and the US, sorry, America and the United Kingdom over the forces of Nazi Germany. And it's just, it's such a gross oversimplification. Um, I mean, I also, I would kind of disagree to some extent with Alex's point, because I think what happened with World War II that we're going to discuss later on, was the immediate after effects of it very much uh, informed um, the rest of the century in terms of World War II was not, it was a war to keep the status quo and a lot of people um, tried to use that crisis to better the left in a few places, mostly, you know, uh, Italy and Greece, uh, and they were brutally taken down. Um, I also think that World War II is, the way that it's taught is on this very weird, false thought which is just because you're fighting a bad guy that makes you a good guy and that sort of moral the moralization of it is uh, much of the opposite of how it was actually seen at the time um alex what are you gonna say yeah no I, I just wanted to respond maybe just to clarify if i can a couple of sentences it's not to say that the events that we're going to be discussing today whether it be the fall of weimar the true history of how weimar fell or indeed how um, the kind of left communist movement was crushed from 44 to 47 in Europe. And that's all very important. That does lay the, the groundwork for what was to follow. That's all very important, but again, not really discussed or talked about. So what I actually meant was the dynamic of the good versus evil thing. Um, I don't think there's any other war in human history. Uh, I don't think there's any, certainly no other one that has been made into hagiography basically idolized and put up on a pedestal as much as World War II. Um, and as we'll talk about, it's just not accurate to what actually happened and what most historians, at least now, are beginning to talk about 80 years later, which is that it was much more of a cynical affair, whether it be because Churchill signed off most of, the, of Eastern Europe in 1941 to Stalin 
uh, including Poland, by the way, because he didn't give a shit about them, even though they got into war for that reason. Uh, but basically what I'm trying to say is that uh, it, I don't think the black and white view of it that most people know about, the vast majority of people, is helpful. I think it gives people a false kind of good guy versus bad guy thing, which is never the case in war. I don't, I may, and well, World War II did the closest, but that's it. Cool. So let's dive straight in. Uh, and we're, we're going to try and, this could be a couple of episodes in and of itself, but we're going to try and give you a, a brief, brief um, overview of how World War II actually started. Uh, and <clears throat> it's fair to say that in many ways it's actually uh, a, a repercussion or a continuation of World War I uh, because um, the Germany, which becomes the, the Weimar Republic, um, was saddled with huge amounts of debt from the, the war, uh, from World War I after they lost. And this had huge consequences on the economy, which then affected social political um, structures. So Alex, do you want to give us some background information for the the start of World War II? Um, in, again, in, in everything we're going to be talking about will out of necessity have to be kind of brief. So if anything I miss out, if anyone's listening going, hey, you didn't bring it up, we have to kind of condense this a bit. But broadly speaking, uh, I think you can start in the late 20s to start to see Again, you can go back to Versailles, but there's actually quite a lot of debate at whether you should or not amongst historians. But in the late 20s, Germany was high, quite almost literally high on um, cheap American credit, enormous billions and billions of dollars pouring in, which in turn, much of that was pouring out into reparations to Britain and France, which were pouring back again to America because the uh, British and the French owed enormous war debts to, to uh, America. It was a weird cyclical system. Anyway, so that was propping up really what was a very dysfunctional uh, economic system in Germany. Um, deep, deep problems, as you mentioned, because of Versailles and the reparations, but really a much bigger problem that the German army, the, the Prussian military caste in particular, had not accepted their defeat in World War I, and they were defeated in World War I. There is no debate about that. They were defeated. Uh, they were able to get away with it through a combination of you know, enormous amounts of propaganda, um, some delusional thinking on behalf of the German people, um, and other things as well. But basically, around that time, you have two things socially going on. You have basically a peasant class as well as a kind of lower middle class, kind of artisan merchants who are getting quite pissed off. Uh, because a lot of the ta they were they felt themselves to be unfairly taxed. They were also rather conservative socially, and they felt that the swinging twenties, where women were moving into the cities and being able to vote, all this stuff was unacceptable. So all these types of things are going on, and then of course you have the crash in 1929, which kind of destroys uh, a lot of things, but didn't necessarily have to. There was there was a lot of talk, certainly amongst the Social Democratic Party and even amongst communists, that this could be solved. Uh, basically by the extension of credit and that it wasn't necessary to institute horrendous austerity. Um, unfortunately, that is ultimately what happened under Heinrich Brunner um, and also Franz von Papen, who took over after him. They, they And they're probably more than any two people responsible what was for what was to follow. They instituted austerity in many ways to try and get rid of the reparations. Uh, they felt it would be a victory. They're also just inherently uh, of a kind of 
view that there was a debt it should be got rid of under any circumstances. So they were to cut unemployment insurance, only I think maybe only four out of five workers were getting any type of support by 1931, 32. Um, and, Basically speaking, it created the groundwork, the seeds for the rise of the Nazi party. I think they were on 12 seats in the late 20s, and they went up from that to, I think it was like 107, which basically it ended up being they had 37% of the Reichstag in 1932 in the, in the June elections. And all of that comes back to, and I can just finish off my, my contribution about this, comes back to those two decisions by center-right Parties. In many ways, Van Papen was actually leaning towards dictatorial rule by the end. So again, this kind of mythology of Weimar is that it was this liberal place. A lot of it was not by the end. In fact, uh, um, whether it be um, Hindenburg or Van Papen, they were leaning towards dictatorship anyway, and they were already instituting hideous austerity against working class. So again, this is what laid the seeds for Hitler to kind of swoop in. And and basically promise rest, restoration of all the great things that they were lost, the mythological past that was taken from them. So, I mean, this is a story somewhat people know. Uh, anyone who's done any history in school would have been told that story. But maybe they would not have been so, and, and I think it's important to hammer home, that it was preventable. Center-right politicians in Germany, uh, for lots of reasons, ideological and their own power, made it an inevitable at a certain point. Yeah, I think it's important to... Um, to point out and remember that in many ways it was actually the liberals that they would rather work with a fascist than work with the communists. And this includes the, the social democrats in many places in Germany that effectively let the Nazis in through through the back door. And in many ways the, the Nazi, the rise of the Nazi party is described as a conservative revolution. Uh, so Seamus, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I would I would agree with yourself there that it was basically it was a failure of people who you would expect to be almost more liberal, but because they felt threatened by the communists, they were more than happy to to uh, draft in the Freikorps to put down communists in uh, in German cities, and that was giving very much a, a leeway. It was giving an outlet for the for the extreme right. Um, and I think it's almost like today where there's very easily counterable lies that are just propagated and they're believed by people who want to believe them. Like the whole idea of the great betrayal, that Germany was stabbed in the back by its wartime leaders. That is something that definitely led to the rise of Hitler. And it's like so many things that you can just discredit today. People want to believe it because it props up their own worldview, their own point of view They'll spread it amongst themselves. And then if you counter it, you're just seen as, as a loon. You're discredited. You're the enemy. Just sort of enforces that sort of us versus them mentality, which just creates further division. As well with the Weimar Republic, it was very isolated from the rest of the international community. It was very much going it alone. Um, I think you do need to be part of a community of nations if you are to be strong. Uh, not so much strong as in terms of military might, but in terms of not falling prey to the kind of far-right tendencies which Germany did fall prey to. Um, and that, again, as a result, it was a fallout of World War One after the Treaty of Versailles. They were very much out on their own, which is understandable. 
But in retrospect, it seems to have left Germany vulnerable to the kind of influence of people like Adolf Hitler. Um, yeah, so that sort of very, very briefly leads us up to um, the, the eve of war. Now, I don't want to get too into actually how and why it happens because it's it's always more complicated than like everything everything in World War Two is about three or four levels more complicated um, than you think. And when you start to dig into it, it's always just um, uh, such a minefield. Sometimes, literally, as well. So let's not let's not get drawn too into the um, uh, you know Hitler declaring war in Poland, and actually let's have a materialist look at why World War Two actually happened. Now, I would posit that in a large way, um, it was to do with the fact that Germany wanted an empire, uh, and where did they get that idea from? Do you think? Um, where did they get the idea that they wanted to be an empire? Well, where did they get the idea that having an empire would be quite useful and a way to, um, you know, keep your economy running? Oh, well, they probably got it from the British, which is not surprising. <laughs> I mean, Germany did have an empire. I mean, in the late 19th century and before World War One, they had extensive possessions in Indonesia. Um, sorry, I think it was Guinea-Bissau. Not Guinea-Bissau. Yeah, anyway, near Indonesia. Pardon me for anyone who knows exactly where I mean in Indonesia. Uh, Papua New Guinea, I think it was, and in large parts of Africa. So they had the, had that experience, and in fact, it, if and if they've been paying attention to reality, rather than the delusions that they were being fed, they would have known that uh, those types of colonies cost money. They don't make money, and they certainly don't help uh, make Ger Germany a bigger power. Um, in fact, it probably made, drove drove the competition with the British Empire, which led to their defeat in World War One. So where did they get the idea for the empire? Well, again, Britain. Uh, the need to supplant uh, Britain, uh, but it's all, it, I don't really think that is necessarily the kind of the main driver. I mean, Hitler was pretty upfront uh, in the 1920s in Mein Kampf uh, for what, what he wanted to do. I mean, he wanted Lebensraum, he wanted to create basically a greater Germany, Grosses Deutschland, um, to the Urals. Uh, he wanted to create a serf class of Slavs, exterminate the Jews. I mean, he's pretty clear that's what he wanted to do in the early 20s. Uh, many people ignored that reality that he'd been saying this for years um, as thing in the early 30s, but it, it was well built in there. And I think maybe my uh, contribution on this can be pretty simple. The war happened uh, because Hitler was obsessed with not only, maybe on a lesser extent, Lebensraum, more so a Bolshevism as he would say, and what he felt to be a Jewish, Bolshevik, Masonic, add another group uh, conspiracy. He really did seem to believe that. He, and, it, you know, he was not crazy, but, I mean, anyone who's done research into his personality have described him as a neurotic psychopath. I mean, he was deeply fucked up in the head, and this is what, this is what he's powerfully latched onto, and the war with Russia was, in many ways, what the first, Second World War is. The Second World War is a war with Russia in which um, capitalist democracies are on the side and play a role. And obviously, uh, you know, there's a second war in, in, in Asia as well. But for the European war, that's what it is. It's a war between fascism and a particular virulent type in, in national socialism, well, even calling it national socialism, basically the German Workers' Party, and um, 
Stalinism or Bolshevism, as they would have called it. That's kind of the war, and it was inevitable the moment Hitler became um, chancellor. It was inevitable because that's what he wanted to do, uh, despite all reason and all sense. Uh, and any historical precedent in terms of Napoleon invading Russia, he he needed to do it, and that and that's why the war happened in 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 a nutshell. Uh, so, Seamus, what do you think the war was really about then? Well, uh, to go back to to Alex's earlier point about the empire, I think that Hitler just had this insane, insatiable drive for grandeur. He wanted the biggest. He wanted the best. He just felt like an empire is what you do to be the most powerful. And you can see that even, even in the designs of tanks in the later years of the war, when, um, when Germany factory output was being decimated, he wanted to build tanks that were about 80 tons, 100 tons, tanks that were too wide for roads, too big for bridges. So he, he had this strange drive within him that he always felt bigger was better. Like his plans for Berlin post-World War II, he had this idea for this grand hall for rallies that would have been so large that the people within the hall, their breath would have condensed into clouds within the hall. This is the sort of scale he was going for. So I think there's there's just this, this crazy drive within this man because like there are people who make history, but I think Hitler is this person that if you took him out of the equation from the 20th century, you may have had a fascist dictator in Germany, but I don't think it would have been this man bent on world domination. Um, but beyond that, it's also almost like this idea that you have to fulfill your election promises. You know, you say that you're going to retake this land. He had he, the German people believed in him, and if he stayed within his own borders, he probably felt that he'd be leaving them down, or that uh, he would lose credibility, he'd lose face if he actually didn't take that action. But he certainly, he definitely wanted Lebensraum, but I don't think he had a real, a real appreciation of how appeasement would only go so far before there was an inevitable backlash. Um, so it's it's often said that um, fascism is capitalism um, defending itself, um, and I think that to just say that you know Hitler was a bad guy that had a lot of bad plans is, a, is like there was still a substantial amount of businesses and business owners and petty bourgeois and you know um you know potentially even royals behind him um in germany and other parts of the world as well uh so alex what are your thoughts there yeah that's kind of leads into what i was about to say there which is that something we should probably i'll briefly touch on it is that the term national socialist uh, workers party is is obviously inaccurate other than maybe the nationalist part um I think I was reading about this earlier this morning when I was refreshing my uh, memories on this subject. But um, part of the um, Goebbels playbook was to try and replace the meaning of words. So socialism became uh, commonality, which are which with the Volk basically uh, loyalty to the German people, rather than socialism as anyone else, else would understand it. Bolshevism became a code word for Jew. Um, in fact, most of the things they used was a code word for Jew. 
Um, but the his base was not amongst the industrial working class. In, in for example, in Hamburg, which was the kind of one of the hotspots of the communist movement, he was too afraid to go there. Fear he was afraid to be assassinated if he went. Um, and certainly, with some of the, the most kind of violent fights between the um, the SA and uh, the kind of various communist militias were in kind of the northern industrial parts. Really, his base initially was amongst kind of farmers, kind of an urban kind of petty bourgeois, bourgeoisie. Um, in about 1932, when he is in this in-between period between June of 1932, when he, when the, uh, the Nazi party first wins 37% of the Reichstag, and in, until January, when he actually becomes chancellor, he's courting industrialists uh, like the Krupp family um, and the other families, I can't remember them all. And he convinces them, oh, I'm not a socialist. Like, that's not what I'm going to do. Uh, and they go, okay, we, but this is somebody we can trust. And then when he actually gains power, he expels, and it, by expels it means kills and locks up the primitive, the very small amount of his the party that was still uh, left leaning. Uh, people like Rome, uh, who had, who, who a bit, you know, appeared in all of the early uh, mass demonstrations of the Nazis, was Rome right next to him, who was the leader of the SA, and the SA was expunged as well and replaced by the SS. The point is, they were not socialist in any sense of the word. It may have been there early on in the 20s. It was gone, well gone by the early 30s. And certainly when they go to war in 1939, I'll finish on this, is that there is a theory that one of the reasons he did go to war and he kept rolling the dice was because Germany was in enormous debt. The cost of basically building the Wehrmacht up was enormous. The cost of basically taking loans out to build the Autobahns to employing seven odd million people who had been unemployed was huge, and he had no way of paying that. And so the war, in many ways, was a way to avoid that. That that would be a very materialist, purely materialist view of why he went to war, but it was certainly a, a considering factor. Seamus? Yeah, uh, just getting back to what you were saying earlier, that it's not just about the madness of that one man. That is true, because, I mean, the fascists, early on, they weren't supported. I don't. They were never actually supported by the majority of the population. But the fact is that most of their funding came from the financial industry and from uh, captains of industry, like Mussolini, uh, to use an example, when he first stood for election, 10% of his funding came from the banking sector and about 64% came from industry. So it wasn't like the man in the street was supporting it. It was very much people who had vested interests in having fascists in power because it protected their interests. Uh, yeah, so um, let's move it away from Nazi Germany and their interest in the war. And let's focus on um, the UK's um, focus on the war. Um, now, at the height of the German Empire, um, during World War II, they had less people conquered than the British Empire at the time. So, you know, we're talking, you know, this is before the fall of the British Empire, um, but, you know, the, the seeds of it, uh, and, you know, it's the empire where the, the, the sun never sets. Um, Churchill, um, throughout various, you know, uh, periods of times in the 40s and before, 
is either friendly with or um, adjacent to um, fascists, uh, especially Mussolini, who, uh, if I remember rightly, uh, um, Churchill stood up in Parliament and said that Mussolini was a very great man. Uh, so what pushes uh, the, the, the UK into the war effort then? Broadly speaking, it can be summed up by the old British um, policy, which had existed since, God, probably the 1600s, which is that there should never be a European, basically hyperpower, superpower that dominated the continent. That's been the case since their wars with the Habsburgs and their wars with the Spanish and the French back in the 1600s and 1700s. That was an old, old thing. What drove Churchill is, is a bit more complicated because Churchill did say that about Mussolini. He also refused to support the Republicans, um, as well as the anarchists and socialists in Spain, uh, blocked any type of funding, any type of weapons going to them. Um, and multiple historians have said that was uh, very much a bias of his class, a bias of his ideology. You know, he was an imperialist. Uh, and even amongst imperialists, he was particularly obnoxious. Um, there's a, the story of the Bengal famine in 1943-1944, where about three to four million Indians uh, starved to death unnecessarily. Most historians would agree on that. Um, and his only response, you know, to you know this tragedy, which you know it was a somewhat, uh, um, it was a disaster whether he had done something or not. But he basically uh, turned um, grain ships away from that part of India and had them stockpiled in, I think it was in Greece or thereabouts, basically for for future use. I don't think they were ever used in the end. And his excuse was, you know, they're you're not they're not dying because you know of, of starvation. They're dying because they're breeding like rabbits. Um, or he also said when asked, you know, why aren't you concerned about this? He goes, well, you know, well, why hasn't Mahatma Gandhi died then if it's such a big problem? I mean, that's the type of person he was. And why he got involved was, I think, that old imperial thing. It wasn't a, a war for civilizations in any real sense for him initially. Again, we have to talk about like 1939, 1940. We're talking very early on before anyone particularly was aware of what was going to happen with the Holocaust. Again, the Holocaust takes over as a kind of a reason for the war. It wasn't really, uh, even if you look at the Nuremberg trials, that it's 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 not as it's barely mentioned really as an issue. Um, now we all think it's the main issue. It wasn't at the time. Um, so yeah, I think it was it was defense of the empire. It was maintaining a European concert, you know, where there was never one big power in charge. Um, and to some extent, it was the, the the fact that Churchill was picked was this was this attack dog, you know, the ultimate imperialist. If we have to fight the Germans and keep going, we might as well pick this attack dog. It's certainly not. He wasn't the choice of the British people after the war, because as we all know, he lost in 1945 by a landslide. So I think that's maybe why uh, the British are there. Um, the Germans uh, just briefly didn't want to fight them. Hitler uh, was looking for a way out of it did not want, uh, never went through its head with Sea Lion because he actually saw the British as fellow Teutons, fellow Germanic peoples. And he felt that they could divide the world between the British and the Germans. So that's what he would have preferred. Um, so Seamus, why do you think that the, the UK joined the war? And if you could sort of tie it into um, the Soviet Union as well, that would be very handy. If I could tie it in with the Soviet Union, right. Um, but I, I do think I do have to echo um, Alex there. It is the case that 
Britain couldn't see a superpower on the European continent. Same reason that they opposed Napoleon um, over 100 years previous to World War II. Uh, they just couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't brook a threat to their primacy. At the time, they were still the leading world superpower, you know. Uh, they had been in decline since World War One, but they were still, there, there was no power at the time greater than Britain. And I think they felt threatened. They certainly would have felt threatened by uh, a belligerent on the continent of Europe. But uh, like Alec was saying earlier, uh, or you mentioned earlier about Hitler singing the praises of Mussolini in Parliament, he even praised Hitler. Uh, he was saying, um, if we had uh, a man like Hitler in Britain, I think that was even quoted in the Nuremberg trials in the defence of the, the Nazi war criminals, how they were being denounced afterwards. But in the lead up to World War II, even Winston Churchill was praising Hitler. Um in terms of them joining world, uh, in terms of them joining against, I think they felt they had to. I mean, they didn't do an awful lot of work to uh, to, to stop it happening. I mean, Germany and France and Britain had uh, a conference and they agreed to give up the Sudetenland to the Germans without without consulting Czechoslovakia. Like that decision was made without the involvement of the Czech people. Um, so it is hard <laughs> to reason how they could give up Czechoslovakia like that and just sign it away, say, you know what, we'll appease Germany, we'll let it go, and then to turn. I think it's, again, they just couldn't see a superpower like Germany existing in Europe without feeling threatened. Yeah, and... Um, Can I, I actually add something there, yeah. Because yeah. I forgot to mention something, the big elephant in the room, though I slightly mentioned it earlier, is the USSR. It should be said that USSR early on, I think it was in 34, was looking for an alliance with the French and the British against the, this, what they saw early on as a threat uh, of Germany, because obviously they'd been invaded in uh, 1914 and got very far in the process and were dismembered by the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So they, they were worried about it, but they obviously the quote-unquote allies Britain and France didn't want to ally with Bolshevik uh, Russia. And so Russia makes its own decisions, which is that they need to find a, a way to buy time um, and maybe carve up parts of Europe in the process. So they come up with this um, uh, non-aggression pact in 1939 with, with the Nazis, which very controversial. Um, famously in America, the American Communist Party flip on a dime. One day they're saying, we need to... We need to fight the, the the evil Nazi menace, and then the next minute they go, actually no, they're great guys. Um, <laughs> never met a better bunch of people. And then again, a year or two later, they go, the worst people in the world. Anyway, the point is that people like Churchill, people like the leaders of the French Republic, would have been happy. In fact, they they thought it would happen immediately if there was a war with um, Germany and Russia. The thing is, um, Hitler at least initially had enough sense to realize that he didn't want a war on two fronts. And so he needed to sort out Russia in the short term. And equally, Russia wanted to buy time. And again, you can debate whether Stalin really thought there was going to be an alliance there 
people have said different things, so it's debated. But certainly they thought they could just watch, sit back, the, the British that is, and the, and the French thought they could sit back and watch the Germans and the Russians beat themselves into a pulp, which is what they do in the end anyway. But So that's def there is a part of that there, but it didn't happen the way they thought it would. Yeah, um, that that's sort of the, the idea that I was um, trying to dance around, where, um, as I said earlier, I think the World War Two was, and for for the UK and America, it was a war to keep the status quo, where they could keep their empires, and they feared Russia much more than they feared, um, you know, fascism, because otherwise, in say, Spanish Civil War, you know, they would have backed the right side. So let's uh, let's move on. Uh, so we've kind of we've kind of gone through some of this anyway, but the the fact that say that the U.S. and Britain refused to open their borders to to many Jewish people that were escaping from the Nazi Party, and you know during the war the Allies bombed many many civilian targets in Germany and Italy. Um, from, I imagine, other places, and, you know, most noticeably, the Americans dropped the first nuclear bomb in Japan on, you know, like, civilian targets. Um, but would we, even though the Allies did pretty fucking terrible things, you would still broadly agree with the um, with the war to some aspect, so I kind of want you to try and square that um, that peg there. So you want us to, to parse the um, the good they did in defeating Germany with the frame the framework of how they behaved during the war and how they behaved towards the refugees. Um, one figure that I saw recently that was quite shocking is the number of the American public that were willing to accept Jewish refugees in the lead up and during World War II versus the number of Americans who are willing to accept Syrian refugees fleeing the civil uh, war in Syria now, there's actually a greater acceptance among the American public now to the idea of welcoming Syrian refugees than there was to the Americans of welcoming, welcoming Jewish refugees during World War II. I think it was something like 14% versus 10%. Um, they weren't exactly this tolerant and accepting nation uh, in the lead up to World War II. Uh, and Americans were incredibly indifferent to World War II. They saw it as that war over there. They didn't want to be a part of it. Of course, that all changed with, um, with the advent of, of Pearl Harbor. But then once they were in the war, like you said, there was an awful lot of targeting of civilian targets. I do think at first that they were trying to hit legitimate industrial targets. But as time went on, the Americans, with their daylight bombing raids, they were basically covering the skies from bombers and dropping so much ordnance. I mean, and, and I think one of the real standout black marks against the Allies during World War II was the firebombing of Dresden. Um, I mean, it is the case that Dresden was uh, a rail hub for the transport of 
of uh, support, support goods and supplies, and there were workshops within the city. But still, does that really outweigh the fact that you uh, you burnt at least twenty five thousand civilians? I mean, the Germans said at the time that it was one hundred and twenty thousand. Most people think now is about twenty thousand or twenty five thousand. That's still that's still unconscionable. And then you mentioned about the dropping of the atomic bomb in Japan. Uh, both bombs killed, I think, in around fifty to sixty thousand people each time. But even in the lead up to that, the Americans were performing firebombing raids on so many Japanese cities. Um, it was actually the incendiary bombs that they dropped. They adapted the design by the Germans. But yeah, the, the Germans, when they dropped incendiary bombs, they were round bomblets inside the inside the, the cylinder. And then Robert McNamara, who went on to be um, JFK's Secretary of War, he he realized if you made them uh, hexagonal, you could fit more in. And when the Americans firebombed Japanese cities, uh, they firebombed Tokyo. I think it was something like 100,000 people died in the firebombing of Tokyo. Because again, it was a paper, a city made out of paper and wood. Um, I don't think there's any real justification of firebombing civilian targets like that. I don't think there's any, there's any way you can say that that is a valid strategic move. All you're doing is making the people suffer. The people at the top, they're not being affected by that. They're not being swayed by the will of the people. They're still just going to carry on regardless until the very end. So, yeah, I'm going to go. Um, I mean, where do you begin? This, this, I think it's uh, to put my academics hat on for a second, but I academic hat with you know no actual position in academia. Um, I think it's true to say, <laughs> I know, yeah, it's not really a very good hat. Um, I think it's true to say that most of the allies, in fact, all of the allies, most of society was deeply anti Semitic. Um, both during the war and certainly before. Uh, the turning back of actual refugee boats with Jews in 1938, 1939 from New York, the sheer quantity of um, just horrendous things in newspapers all around the world. And Ireland is, is by far not absolved on that front. We only let in 100 Jewish refugees into this country. There are people standing up in the dolls saying that the Holocaust was a good thing. People who have sons and grand, I think grandsons at this point in the doll today were fascist sympathizers. There's a statue in Fairview in Dublin of Sean Russell who collaborated with the Nazis. I mean, Dublin and Irish people don't escape this, you know? There, It was there. It was in the groundwater, as, as, as we'd say. So even though by not that long after, um, I think it was in December of 1941, when uh, you had the famous meeting of the heads of basically the German state bureaucracy administration decided uh, to begin the actual Holocaust, um, more so than just killing Jews, actually the industrial murder of, of what ended up being six million Jews, and also another four or five million uh, Roma, gypsies and homosexuals, etc. Um, that that was known pretty soon afterwards, I think either because the Enigma code or because whatever, just news traveled. And there was never an attempt to bomb the railways. There was never an attempt to bomb and try and stop the mass killing. You know, there wasn't. And and they had lots of bombs to spare, as Seamus just said. They didn't, they didn't try. 
I think there was really no sympathy for the Jews until really everything came out, until the visuals from the camps came out, until everybody was really aware of what it was. And I say that as somebody who, who met a, a woman in Dublin who was told as a young girl when she read a book, very first book she'd ever read in 1952 about the Holocaust. She'd never heard about it in Ireland, of course. And she went back to her nun teacher and, and said, oh, I'm so upset. And she goes, why are you upset? And he goes, oh, I've just read about the Holocaust. And she goes, oh, you shouldn't be upset. It's just Jews. And that, and that was her fucking teacher. Now, I think that was there. And I think that explains an awful lot uh, about how the war was, this this lack of interest in this lack of empathy for Jews because they were other, they become these creatures in people's minds. Even people who'd never met Jews had these opinions, you know. Um, and that type of othering is obviously there as well when it comes to the mass bombings. Um, the, why is it that in the Nuremberg trials, when they draw up crimes against Germany, they don't include the Blitz? Do you, they don't fucking stop going on about the Blitz. Why is that not a crime at the Nuremberg trials? Because the Allies did it worse, much much worse. So they decided things that were tr crimes against humanity. They were not to include things they'd done, obviously. So already we're, we're getting into a position of this, the war is not this uh, good guys versus bad guys thing. Uh, in many ways, it's um, certainly if you're an Indian, you're not of the view that, that Churchill and Britain's fighting for your freedom because he wasn't. Uh, and Poland, they're not fighting for your freedom because they sold them down the river, you know? To the Soviets, so all these things are there, uh, which completely uh, destroy the mythology, really, of of the war. If anything, it's the lesser of two eagles, evils argument, uh, which is what would you have rather preferred in the end? Which is that Nazi Germany had won the war and killed, God knows, untold millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, and they would have done it, uh, or the alternative, which is the one we had in the end. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's any redeemable, anything redeemable, bleh, redeemable about what they did. Um, I certainly don't think that um, the in any other war, if the roles were reversed, the the bombing of Dresden, um, the bombing, um, the fire bombing of Tokyo, the dropping of bombs in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, those would be crimes against humanity because they were, uh, but they were done by the victors. So to the victors go to suppose. Um, I feel that the lesser of two eagles might be a good uh, name for the episode. That'd be a good name, yeah. Or an, yeah. A, an album, an album title for the Eagles of Death Metal. <laughs> um, no, but if I, if I remember correctly, the the charges for the Nuremberg trials were for waging an aggressive war, and so basically almost every American, well, actually, I would imagine every American president could have probably been charged with, you know under the Nuremberg trials. Um, so um, while this is happening, as you know, these, these terrible moments of human suffering are happening um, at the hands of the Allies and the Axis powers, uh, there is many good looking, um, young, attractive, uh, sexy, gun-toting, um, resistance fighters in France, Italy, Greece, uh, beyond. Um, and uh, a lot of films and um, books are spent talking about them and looking at them in some ways. Some of them, you know, um, 
more true than others. Um, so do we want to get into the resistance fighters a little bit who probably catch the imagination for um, a population quite well because they, a lot of the time, don't have the baggage of mass bombings of um, civilians because they are civilians that are fighting against something like the Axis power. Well, I do think it's interesting that the the Italian partisans and the Italian resistance were ultimately, I think if you're looking at it uh, objectively, they were far more effective than the French resistance, but the French resistance are romanticized to a greater extent. And I'm not sure if that's because there was a greater amount of involvement between the Americans and British with the French, so that when there is a depiction in a book or a movie that's following a British agent or American agent, they're more likely to be depicted as interacting with the French. Or is it because the um, the Italian resistance were more predominantly communist than the French? I mean, obviously there was an awful lot of French Maquis and French resistance who were communist, but far, it was far higher or far greater extent within the Italians. Uh, and it may be the case that because the, um, the Italian resistance war communists, that they have been overlooked in the history since then. I mean, if somebody is looking for material on the French resistance, it's quite easy to find. And obviously you can find material on the Italian resistance, but it seems to get less of a focus than the French does. Um, then in terms of the actual French resistance itself, like you said, it is, it is romanticized. It wasn't necessarily as effective as people make it out to be. I mean, there was cases where the, the French were airdropped uh, explosives and they used it to blow up targets that weren't necessarily strategically important, but they just felt this will get attention. This will, this will send our message home. Whereas then the SOE <laughs> probably thinking, well, we would have liked you to use that on a train line or something like that, rather than a local recruitment office, you know? Um, and then regarding the Italian resistance, they did have greater lineage because they began as resistance to Mussolini. So the French resistance just began as a reaction to the occupation, to Vichy, to the invasion, whereas the Italian resistance it had been organized. It had been working for years. They were they were seasoned. They were veterans. Obviously, there was veterans in France, people who had fought in the Spanish Civil War, but the Italians they had a they had real pedigree, and they were far more effective. Like they they actually threw the Germans out of Florence. I think it was what a three or four. Can't remember. It was a three day or four week battle, uh, and they did that without the actual boots on the ground of the Americans or British. So, I mean, if you if you're asked me to pick my favorite, I'd have to say uh, the Italian resistance were my favorite because they were uh, more effective in my books. I think it's fair to say that the reason that the Italian and uh, to some extent the Greek resistance are not fondly remembered was because they were effective in many instances. Mm. Uh, Alex? They're probably not remembered either because they were on the wrong side of the 
Iron Curtain in the end. Um, some of the stuff I was reading up on, because my awareness of the partisans would have been mostly um, kind of kind of former Red Army soldiers, uh, Red Army soldiers, as well as Ukrainians and Belarusians who were basically working behind the lines in um, before Operation Bagration and basically in, on the Eastern Front, as well as in Yugoslavia, where Tito, of course, was the most famous uh, kind of partisan leader who rose to pow power afterwards. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't have been uh, tremendously aware um, of, of kind of what happened in Northern Italy to my shame, presumably because, it, as you said, it w they didn't want to get it. it, it kind of the, they didn't want the knowledge to get out there that it was actually mainly communist and socialist kind of uh, ideological force that had, um, in the end, kind of toppled uh, Mussolini and the German puppet state. And even before that, 1944 had a, an attempted uprising, uh, which had been very brutally crushed, but clearly. The kind of the history of the kind of factory councils in northern Italy and in, in before World War One, which was you know an old industrialized, still is industrialized, kind of working class part of, of of Italy, and that kind of legacy was there. The history, obviously, of uh, of the war and um, and how it played out. But in terms of um, the French, I actually yeah, I, I I would be fairly I was fairly surprised a lot of the stuff I found out when I was doing research on it because uh, I again it's not something that um, there's always something with World War II that you, you learn, and this time I, I think I learned a lot about how much public support there was. I mean, I was amazed at, not to skip the, jump the gun, but I was amazed at the electoral support um, in the immediate aftermath, I do mean the immediate aftermath of World War II in both Northern Italy and in, in France, it was astounding. Um, I, again, not going into it too far, but we'll have that later on. But um, yeah, I think it, it's a simple thing, which is that um, the established parties, the kind of left of centre and right of centre parties in both countries had collapsed so in Italy long before, and in France, obviously, in 1940. And the communists stayed, and they fought. And um, Patan, uh, being the great war hero of World War I, um, having become the kind of uh, puppet dictator, uh, fascist dictator, uh, there was very little else for most people to do but to listen to what communists had to say and what socialists had to say. Uh, and again, evidence as will be is <laughs> after World War II, once that kind of, you have competition for propaganda and competition from those old forces, those electoral kind of votes start to disappear quite soon afterwards. But anyway, we'll talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it does, that is a good little segue there. Um, because it is important to remember that you know when by the time that the Allies reached Turin, the the field marshal had already handed his Luger over to a um, a factory worker, you know, who was part of the you know the Italian um, uh, resistance. I can't remember if it was the Garibaldi um, League specifically, but it was it was you know one of the the communist ones. And, you know, in 1944, um, Churchill is signing documents and saying in Parliament that the, you know, the Greek um, uh, Nazi security battalions are fighting alongside the Allies to defeat the Greek resistance movements because they're entirely the wrong people as far as um, uh, Churchill and, you know, American and UK politics are concerned, and this is part of the reason why I want to get across that is it's a war to keep the status quo, in many ways. Um, 
So the the immediate effects of World War II, um, the main thing that we kind of want to focus on is the 1948 uh, Italian elections. Now, there, had, there was an elections in 1946, I believe it was, um, and they were quite heated and there was a lot of things going on. The 1948 Italian elections is effectively the beginning of the Cold War. It's when American intervention in uh, European elections really comes to the forefront. And I think it is something, it's close to like 10 million and dollars then, um, you know, in 1948 money that they spent um, trying to um, affect the election against the, the popular front that was, that was, you know, threatening to take hold of Italy. Uh, so Alex, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I just to say that, there's, I mean, there's a couple of dates there that you could focus on, 48 being the kind of the end point, but you have to talk about 44 when de Gaulle troops back in, when he forms an alliance with the basic communists and socialists in France, uh, same in, in Italy in, in 45, you have, I think it's 45 or 46, so it's, it's 45 for France as an election where I think 75% of the votes go for that kind of coalition of de Gaullists and also the communists and socialists, like vast majority of people in the country are voting for that. Um, and you, and then in 46, you have a, a similar vote in, in Italy, uh, but then you have this key point in May of 47. So a year before 48, where the American kind of department, uh, I think it's department of state, whoever it was basically warn both um, French government, French elite, and the Italian elite, that if they don't remove the communists from their governments, even though they made up the vast majority of, of, of uh, those who were in power at the time, or those who've been elected, anyway, um, that there would be no money, that they would cut off their supplies of money uh, from the Marshall Plan or from any other support they had. Uh, and it was in their eyes, it was fairly simple, which was that they'd signed an, an agreement at Yalta. Uh, or, or Potsdam maybe afterwards, whatever, that the, the European continent was to be divided. And this was their zone and that's it. In the same way that the Soviets when uh, stamp out kind of alternatives in Hungary and in uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland or wherever else, or weren't particularly thrilled with Tito when he had his own thing. Uh, it was the same thing. Their view of it was that this is our territory. It doesn't matter if you're popular. This is an American empire after all. And I suppose one of the things you could say about the end of World War One, World War Two. Pardon me, is an unofficial American empire is is put in place with vassal states effectively, um, rather than one of the old empires of, of the British, the French, where an active kind of colonization process is going on. This is called client states, and in their eyes, look, we're not giving you money, we're not doing business with you, we're the boss. You know, who do you think got you know A set you free and B is paying for most of the things you want to do, which are welfare state because that's the thing, the big thing after. World War II for the French is we need to make sure that there's protections for uh, for unemployment, there needs to be protections for healthcare and housing. Okay, so yeah, uh, basically that was what it was. I mean, you can see the end of World War II as kind of the beginning of the of the American empire that we still live with today in a reduced form. Um, and in that regard, it's not surprising that they tossed their fingers at the French and said, I don't care who you voted for, and I don't care what you believe. If you want this money, if you want our help, um, and even if you don't, we're going to make you suffer for this. And the same is true in Italy. They were had no problem 
uh, creating it was the Operation Gladio, which was in, in operation, I think, until even into the 60s, which was involved terror, terrorism and kind of assassination. They had no problem. This is part of our empire. This is part of our kind of your client state. You do what we tell you or we'll make you suffer. And that's kind of, in many ways, what you can see um, as the kind of the big, um, um, I suppose, legacy of Second World War. And in particular, you know, being caught on the wrong side of this Iron Curtain, too, too bad, basically. Uh, so, Seamus, what are your thoughts about the immediate uh, political after effects of the war? Well, I think there, there's really not much to add to what Alex has said there. Um, it very much was the case that the Marshall Plan, it wasn't this benevolent gesture from America that they're just going to help rebuild Europe unconditionally out of the goodness of their heart after so much devastation was done by these bombs mysteriously dropping out of the air. Who dropped them? Who knows? Um, like it, it was very much used as a carrot. You know, they have the carrot and the stick. They had already used the stick during the war. Now they're using the carrot to lead Europe down the path that they want to go down. Um, I think you mentioned earlier yourself that election in 1948 um, in Italy, where it was, was it the, the Christian Democrats that they supported in the election? That was pretty much beginning of the playbook for America and their interference in free democratic elections for the remainder of the Cold War. Um, it was the case that other countries, free sovereign nations, they had pretty much zero respect for the idea of free democratic uh, elections happening in other countries. If they felt that their hegemony was threatened in any way, they would feel like they had the absolute right to interfere in any way they wanted. Um, and and it, it is a great shame because even if we look at Italy after World War II, one of the first things brought in was voting rights for women, which had been denied by the fascist government. That was brought in by the communists um, because the resistance in Italy, I think something about like 10% of their combat force was made up of women. Um, I mean, out of the necessity of war, they were happy enough to advance the rights of women. Uh, America very much after the war was very much happy to roll back the rights of women because they wanted to return to the status quo. That's just one small example of how it was a retrograde step to use the money of the Marshall Plan to coerce nations into giving America the election results that they wanted. Um, but I guess America can't be too upset now about interference in elections given their history in the past. Um, yeah, it's also, I guess, important to point out as well that the the immediate after effects of World War II is also the the British Empire starting to crumble for various reasons, and the the reasons are different for for each for each country, um, but also the rise of the American Empire, which you know, considering it's on the wane now. It probably the shortest empire that we've ever seen in history. Alex? Yeah, I just wanted to add something very briefly there, which is that the a couple of things are going on 
towards the end of the war, and it's been talked about in various documentaries and books, that Churchill basically agreed to set a time limit on the British Empire in return for basically giving the uh, position of hegemon uh, over to America. And America, in turn, would be able to dictate things as it did in Bretton Woods in regards to the international reserve currency, blah, blah, blah. You can talk to economists about that. Will, for example. But the, the key thing here is the British Empire is allowed to continue to a point. So 45 to basically 61, you have a period. Now, in that period, you obviously have conflicts in Malaysia as, as kind of Chinese uh, Maoists try and kind of um, usurp control there. You have a horrendous and very, very bloody and really illegal dirty war in Kenya, in which maybe as many as 86,000 people are killed. They use concentration camps. It's, it's grim stuff. But the king, the thing that really ended the British Empire and literally America coming in, tapping its watch, is Suez in 56. Um, and that was simple. Uh, they did it without asking permission first. And the Americans literally, lit, um, I think it was Eisenhower at the time, sent a, a telegram, which was like uh, literally one sentence, which was, whoa, boy. Literally, that's what he sent them. And they they stepped over the line. They did something which the hegemon didn't want them to do. And then that was it. Support for the empire was gone. Uh, literally within four or five years, the empire was pretty much over. Uh, same with the French. Uh, they're still at war in, in Indochina, ten, hundreds of thousands of people killed. In Algeria, over a million people, over a million Algerians died in the War of Independence. Again, until America was like, that's enough. We're done. You know, we're not helping you in this anymore. And then the empire collapses in the 60s. So they were not, they had no problem <laughs> with the type of racist, uh, white supremacist empires that the French and the British had, as long as they listened to them, basically. You can have your little area, that's fine. But you know who's boss. And when we tap our watch and say, that's it, that's it. Um, and that was the case with the British. So, yeah, the British Empire was crumbling for a while. The actual real fall came when the Americans basically announced to them, all that thing, all that stuff you think you had and deserve, nah, that's ours. Out you go. Bye-bye. Same with the French. So that was kind of um, a key part about the, if the Second World War is a war for democracy and to end the Holocaust, blah, 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 which it isn't. Neither of those things it was. Um, then all of that put pays to it. The 20 years after World War II, in which the British, sorry, the Americans support racist white supremacist empires in, in, in Britain and in France, puts pays to that whole mythology. And it and doesn't take much to figure that out, you know. Sharers? Yeah, I think as well about the British Empire, it was inevitably declining at the end of World War I. It was certainly dealt its death blow by World War II. Because unlike America, England suffered far more economically from both those wars. And after World War, and especially in World War I, like the thing that had propped up the British Empire or the people who were the foot soldiers of the British Empire were the British aristocratic class. And so many of them were killed in World War I and then after World War I to try and recoup and tr try and uh, bolster the exche exchequer. There was massive state tax put, put in place that again hammered uh, the aristocratic classes. Um, a lot of them would have lost their holdings abroad overseas. They would have just given them up. And then again in World War II, whatever was left, they were wiped out again. Um, and then as well, because Britain was left so broke after World War II, the empire was unaffordable at that stage. And the movement for uh, Indian independence 
had been well underway before World War II, even if World War II hadn't happened, more than likely Indian independence would have happened anyway. It might not have happened when it did. It might have been delayed by five years or so. But once you lost India, you were going to lose all, all of the empire. The main one is to ask, as anarchists, uh, what, what is the lessons to be learned from World War II? Um, what is it to be learned? Um, that the power of nationalism, the power of tribal identity, delusion, fantasies of former glories that were that are lies, those are very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. And facts don't work very well, historically speaking, to fight against these things. Equally, you have to stop these things getting uh, to the point of no return anyway there was a point in certainly in germany in 1931 1932 you know and before that obviously as well where all of this could have been stopped and it was it wasn't stopped because uh people decided who are on the right-wing perspective but even some liberals as well to basically make, punish the working class for the crimes of the Prussian aristocracy. And that included people in London and in, in Washington and in Paris who decided the reparations should be enforced on the Weimar Republic, even though it was Imperial Germany that waged World War I. So I think these are things that you can look back on. And the reason why I'm mentioning all these things is that it's going to be very, very hard, for obvious reasons, as anarchists, if you're in the midst of 1940, 1941, anywhere to 1945, to try and have a an argument, a peaceful argument about what uh, about an anarchist society, you can, however, also at the same time learn that as the Italians did in, in in northern Italy, that once these moments come, that you should not allow the Allies to disarm you, which is what they did in 1945. And certainly, if there's an opportunity, even though it's not a good one much like with the um, the Spanish anarchists in, in 1936, doesn't necessarily, you know, the occasions that arise don't necessarily always conform to what you'd like them to be. And maybe you just have to jump at what opportunities you have and take the risk. Because certainly waiting around until after the war so they can slowly propagandize you into oblivion, that didn't work very well. So uh, basically the two things I'd say is either make sure these types of cruel austerity, which is a war on the working class, to be honest with you, don't happen or stopped before they happen because they will disintegrate into what we saw in Europe in the 1930s. Or if you're stuck in those circumstances, don't allow people in, in, in bourgeois parties to say, oh, no, no, you need to wait. We need to do this this way or that way. You know, you need to go when you have the momentum. Shame shit. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. And I would say that if you are in a position where you do have to fight an enemy and you have an ally, that ally, like the Italian, North Italians in uh, World War II, the Americans and the British were their ally, not because they had an aligned ideology, it was just out of convenience for them. And if you have an ally who's your only your ally out of convenience, that ally, as soon as circumstances change and the context changes, they will be happy to walk all over you. They'll be happy to see you die if you're no longer fighting with them against a common enemy. Um, like it even happened in, in France during World War II in Vercors. 
something like 600 French resistance fighters were killed by the Germans with absolutely no backup from, from the Allies because all that meant to the Allies was that was a German division who was distracted from fighting them. So the Allies were saying, that's, that's grand enough. Um, the message is, don't trust somebody who is only your ally out of convenience. Trust an ally who has the same ideology, the same outlook, the same goals as you. But if you're just fighting a common enemy, as soon as that common enemy is gone or the enemy shifts, you can be shafted very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's important to point out that if the the Nazis had been taken to task very early on by um, aggressive beatings, uh, yeah. they probably wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't. They just they simply wouldn't have gone as far as they had done. Uh, and they were held back by the liberals. So don't fucking trust the liberals. <laughs> like, yeah. fucking... You know, there's just no, sometimes there's just some people you're not going to reason with. And it's better to just, you know, beat the shit out of them and knock their jaw off than to have a reasoned debate with them. Because you don't have reasoned debate. Reasoned debate is what you have with adults. And, you know, as soon as someone starts talking about the master race, then you're not talking to adults anymore. You're talking to fucking, you know, psychopaths. I think another thing to remember as well is that, um, as, as much as it happened in the Russian Revolution as well, anarchists made uh, a fair component of, um, you know, the resistance battalions in, you know, in all the countries and were often and quickly um, betrayed by the communists. And there's some instance of saying, like, you know, using the anarchists as the front line in communist battalions in Italy. That has got some historical precedence into it. But going forward, like things are going to get really spicy. Uh, there should all, it should already be spicy enough. And so, you know, no matter what you kind of think about, you know, the difference between anarchism and communism, like we really should be banding together and making sure we don't make those mistakes again, considering that, you know, can, how many people were in the IWW in the 1930s around the world who were involved in trade unionism, et cetera, et cetera. And we simply do not have those amount of numbers as we had then. We have to grow them again, but let's not do it this time in this sort of partisan way about, you know, who's the most left wing and who gets to, to control it where, like, fucking climate chaos is going to be such a huge issue that we don't have time to decide <laughs> like uh, what's the, you know, the, the exact end truth in terms of, I don't know, should we be going with Buchanan or Marx? Alex. Just very briefly, I think the key point there, and I said it to you earlier, it's the whole reason why the, the Nazis rose. The people need to be very aware of the power of fantasy delusion, uh, non-reality thinking, based thinking. It is very, very dangerous. It's a great book by Hannah Arendt called the, On the Origins of Totalitarianism. I would really recommend people read that. So many of the things that people are not really, are kind of laughing at at the moment, the way people are ignoring the COVID virus in America, those are very, very worrying signals. Because once you go down that road into non-reality based thinking, into delusions, 
uh, of former glories, you're 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 not that far away from fascism. It's one of the biggest components of it. Right. I feel that's um, a good place to stop. Uh, hashtag stop fascism. So thanks hashtag for JK Rowling's a cunt. <laughs> oh, yeah. actually, um, just as a as a side note, uh, we'll see if we leave this in. But good friend of the show who got a mention in the last one as well. Uh, at Tone Policing, MK Katz is currently um, doing a fundraiser for himself. Uh, he's been properly shafted by the uh, by the the English education system. Uh, he's been training to be a paramedic for two years now, and have decided to stop paying him basically what he's owned uh, owed by the state um, and. He is trying to raise um, a couple of a couple of thousand quid to pay off his, his student debts, so he could go on to be a paramedic next year. Um, so if you if you jump onto his um, uh, Twitter, or um, we'll put the the link to it in the notes. And if you if you can give him a tenner, give him a five or whatever you can afford, that go a long way for uh, a bit of mutual aid as well. Uh, and as always, uh, like and subscribe for the episode, um, share it with your friends, but more importantly, share it with your enemies, and we will see you again. you enjoyed our discussion of World War II and uh, next week we have another kind of deep dive discussion of the British Labour Party uh, it's history, where it goes now um, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's back under the control of the Blairites um, and it'll be with uh, two people at least anyway who are former members of the Labour Party in Britain uh, but in the meantime uh, hopefully you share and, soon, and if you haven't subscribed already subscribe too and we'll leave you off with a World War II kind of communist anthem. <laughs>